One, two, three. Welcome to Three Song Stories. We're the show that uses songs to extract biography from our guests. We tap into the Power Music House to connect us to times and places and people and emotions from our lives and listen to some great music with them along the way. Thanks for listening. I'm Mike Canary. Our guest this week is Jenny Lapham. Jenny's bio is concise and well-written, so I'm going to just quote it verbatim. Jenny Lapham loves punk and giving PowerPoint presentations. She's a mental health advocate and sociology fangirl who leverages her personal and professional expertise to change how we talk about mental wellness. A perpetual bucket lister with bright ideas, Jenny has led an unconventional life full of chaos, magic, and education. Her idea of a good time is obsessing over romance novels, crafting, and missing the 90s. She and her husband live in Florida, but her home will always be Los Angeles. Hello, Jenny. How are you? Hi, Mike. I'm good. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for inviting me. I'm excited. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. Um, what was your most recent PowerPoint presentation? <laughs> Let's see. My most recent PowerPoint presentation was, oh, it was actually on uh, mark- content marketing uh, romance novels. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. That begs the follow-up. <laughs> what does that mean? Um, so I, I give a variety of PowerPoint presentations depending on my audience. And this was um, – I have a side hustle where um, it's a fragrance business for – that's inspired by the scent descriptions used in romance novels. So I gave a PowerPoint presentation <laughs> on how to engage the romance community online for social media content. And then, I mean, I give mental health ones. And then let's see, the one before that I gave on the Amber Alert system and how I think we should overhaul it. Well, all right. Okay. Well, thank you for, for bearing with me on that. Um, were, you, were you listening to music on your way to the station? No. <laughs> no, I wasn't. What were you was, listening to? I was listening to an audio book. A romance novel? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yes, I was. Um, so technically not music, but music to my ears nonetheless. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, so you grew up in Los Angeles. I did not. I was born what? in Detroit. You were born in Detroit. When did you move to Los Angeles? When I was 18. Okay. Well, then let's go back to Detroit. So you were born in Detroit. Yes. Uh, how would you characterize the musical background of your childhood when you were young? I would describe it as um, metal. <laughs> I don't know. It was vibrant. There was a lot of music in our house, but it was different from what you would think of when you think of like a Detroit kind of family. So, excuse me, my brother was a member of the KISS army when he was like four. It's like the third time KISS has come up in a row on this show. So I was born into a house with (laughs) with a lot of KISS, with Quiet Riot, um, Motley Crue, Van Halen, um, my dad, though, is 
diehard Beatles through and through. And so there's a lot of that. My mom, all Broadway show tunes. Um, And then there's that. I was born in 1983, so there was some real early kind of hip-hoppy type stuff that was emerging uh, in the post-disco <laughs> era. Uh, but yeah, it was, I remember just a very musical house, but it was always like band music, like drums, guitar, bass, always. What's the earliest musical memory that comes to mind if I say try to dig back? My earliest memory of music is Mike and the Mechanics, the song The Living Years. Mm-hmm. So I was five years old, I believe. I was in kindergarten. And I I didn't know how music was – how music came together because I knew that there were drums. I knew there were guitars. So synthesizers and things like this, I didn't know where that came from, and I just assumed it was either guitars or drums. Mm-hmm. And that song, when it would come on in the car, I remember just trying to visualize, like, how these so- like these sounds are coming out of drums, how they're coming out of guitars. Um, but it was I, – I, I have bipolar disorder. And when I go back to, like, early experiences where I think – those kinds of symptoms and those kinds of experience emerged, that song is is part of it. I would hear that song and get absolutely devastated, cry. It was so emotionally overwhelming to me, and yet I had no reason for that song to break my heart at five years old. Yeah. Um, but I also think that that song kind of was my introduction to punk because it was the first song I remember hearing with like gang vocals and in the chorus and how the gang vocals just kind of got really loud and it was very, you know, much like a choir of voices. Um, anyway, so I was obsessed with that song. I didn't know how it was made. I didn't know where it came from, but it was the first cassette I ever got my my dad and my brother like, came to me. So the first music you owned. Yeah. It was they gave me a cassette and that was my first experience rewinding something and listening to it over again and breaking my own heart in my own like teddy bear wallpaper bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> Just sitting there sobbing to Mike and the mechanics, wondering how drums sound like synthesizers. Um, were there instruments being played in your uh, household? Did you play any? I did not play any. Uh, my brother played drums, guitar. My dad plays guitar and keyboards, piano. My mom plays piano. Um, always instruments. Lots and lots and lots of instruments growing up. And I never really played. I dabbled. I took lessons. Uh, I took drum lessons for like a drum spell. Kit? Yeah. Um, when I was 12 or so. But and I can I dabble, but I've never committed to like I'm going to be a musician. It was always around me, um, and you just sort of 
don't think what everyone in your family is doing is like super cool kind of. Right. Um, I was always drawn to how music is made as opposed to how I can make it. What's the first band that got your attention or musician? That got my attention. As in, like, it's mine or? Yeah, as in, you know, something that suddenly you identified with. And if somebody said, you know, who's your favorite band? You know, the police. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm going to start saying that now. (laughs) (laughs) The police. Um, That was my first favorite band. (laughs) You know, I. uh, Aerosmith. Aerosmith was the first band that was mine. And it was the record, oh, Pump? I don't know Aerosmith. Okay. I mean, I know who I they are. I want to say it's Pump. <laughs> it has a pickup truck on the cover. But um, I, can, I can hold. Jared is giving us the <laughs> nod. You've got it right. Okay. I can hold the cassette in my mind's eye. And it has, I think it's Pump. Um, and it had a song called Janie's Got a Gun. And that was the first band song cassette that was not in the household before I asked for it to be. You know, it was, this is mine. I you was, brought that music to your house. Yes. And I, I, oh man, this must have been 89, 90, 91. Um, I remember when that song came out. That song was very big. <laughs> I was obsessed with that song. So I would say Aerosmith was the first that I brought in. And then... Um, you know, part of being me is always trying to navigate this. Two roads diverged in a wood, and my brain went both ways. So it was Aerosmith, Pump, New Kids on the Block, Popsicle. Hmm. I was very, you know, at home it was Aerosmith. At home it was drums, at, you know, guitar. But school, friends, the playground, it was New Kids on the Block and Belle Biv DeVoe and stuff you know so i balanced both of those and i loved them equally i think Hmm. it's time for your first song the 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 punk uh, master jenny uh, sarah mclaughlin yes yes how would you like to proceed you can play it you want to listen to it yeah okay this is jenny lapham's first song here on three song stories this week this is building a mystery by sarah mclaughlin from her 1997 album surfacing As I said earlier about this juggling two different beings as as a young girl kind of navigating life. So on one hand, I was a punk and I looked like a punk and I listened only to punk and I was going to DIY basement shows and, and you know, several nights a week. And on the other hand, I loved dance and I was really into going to like teen like preteen and teen dance clubs and really into ballet and doing you know competitive dance and that's as a as like a 12 year old girl those are two very different friend groups you know one was mostly boys and the other you just kind of have to have this this niche of girlfriends and they were not punks yeah, I can, I can imagine. <laughs> so I I always had to kind of pick which 
version I needed to be uh, depending on the environment. Code switching, they call it. Well, I don't want to appropriate code switching. Okay, I didn't mean to appropriate it. <laughs> but, the yeah. Ge- in, the, in, the, in the generic. Yes, in the generic sense, it was um, what is the safest thing for me to be at this time? And and the result of choosing the wrong one is ridicule, but it's also just shame, embarrassment, um, you're just trying so hard to just st- like stay on course, um, and it's just very, very difficult, especially for somebody like me who had all these mental health diagnoses who is not yet on the correct medication. So I dis- I entered high school as a very young 13 <laughs> and I walked in and it was just punk just punks everywhere hmm. like punks and goth kids and all it was just all like a whole subculture high school and you know lots of skaters and and just you know there was like polyamorous relationships <laughs> with like thruples and it was like what is this world and it was like okay well I entered high school looking like a punk that first day, and they were everywhere. And one boy walked by, and I, to this day, like, had this visceral reaction of thinking about him walking by and just me, like, my head exploding, like, who is that? How does he exist? Why is he so beautiful? Did I die? Am I dying? (laughs) How can I learn in this environment? (laughs) And anyways... Um, so, of course, I stalked him on AOL, and I still remember his screen name. And I started talking to him on there, and I pretended that I was way, way, way cooler than I was. And I ended up at a party about a week in – no, not a week – about a month into freshman year, and he was there. And I was so embarrassing. Everything about me was embarrassing. There was gorgeous older punk dudes there, and they kept calling me the old boot. <laughs> like, I, and I didn't know what that meant. It was just like, "Hey, you wanna you wanna get some soda for the old boot over there?" You want? I mean, it was just very, just oh my gosh, how embarrassing. And there was a senior girl there who kept calling me bangs because I had such terrible, terrible bangs, and <laughs> everything about it was humiliating. Whatever. So dreamy boy Brian um, called me into the to this den. He like pulled me in. I was like, oh my gosh, he knows who I am. He doesn't think I'm an old boot. He's not calling me bangs. He's pulling me in. I wonder how he's going to humiliate me. I don't know what's happening, but it's going to be terrible. But I'm going to tell my diary it was great. <laughs> and, and he pulls me in and he plays Sarah McLaughlin's Building a Mystery. And he asked me if I liked it. And I thought, okay, this is serious trick question. I mean, he has suspenders. He has blue hair. He is like – he's one of those – he's so beautiful. Like he walks in slow motion and there's like mystery wind coming at him. He's <laughs> like, building a mystery. Yes. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> he was. He was just – he embodied He embodied what Sarah McLaughlin was, was really trying to address. Anyway, so he played it and I was like, uh, I didn't want to be embarrassing. And he played it again. And he's like, this song is so – Good. And he started explaining the things he liked about it. Then he put on 
jewel pieces of you. Huh. And he's like, check this out. Was the door closed so nobody else was listening? <laughs> no. Or? No. So he plays Was there these... music elsewhere in the party that was punk? Sure. Probably somewhere. Okay. Well, I'm just but, trying to – this seems like an outlier but, situation. But it's not because why this song is so important to me and why it brings me back to that shaggy carpet den with this beautiful boy and these, like, terrible bangs that I had – um, you know, that was the first person and experience in my whole life where I didn't have to pick between being punk, going to a dance club, crying to Mike and the mechanics, whatever the case may be. He was the first person that gave me permission to just be one person, to like what I like. And it's okay to like what you like. It's okay to be all of these things, and that's what makes you awesome. And you can have terrible bangs and awful braces, and your shoes aren't going to fit because they didn't make Converse Chuck All-Stars for young girls back then. I had to wear older boy ones that were a little big. And, you know, all of these insecurities, this swoony, gorgeous punk boy – you know, with combat boots and who listened to the business and stuff, he um, he invited me to like Sarah McLaughlin. So the end of this beautiful story is that the summer after ninth grade, he and I went to Lilith Fair. <laughs> um, we also went to Warp Tour, um, one of the early Warp Tours, 1997, 98. Um And we would see Rancid and we would go to punk shows and all these things. But we would also just like like share mixtapes of, yeah, but Michelle Branch is also badass. (laughs) You know, those kinds of things. So that's why this song is so important and why it brings me back. Like I I remember this merging within my brain of it's you're okay, kid, Hmm. (laughs) you know. So. At Lilith Fair, yeah, were you guys all like done up punk style? And if yeah. so, were you like uh, in, a, in a small minority of people? Or uh, probably am I, am I, the am I only mischaracterizing? two. Yeah, I mean Lilith Fair. I, I might have been the first Lilith Fair. So let's see, ninety seven. Sounds about right. Well, if Building a Mystery came out in ninety seven, so it would be ninety eight, probably the summer. Um, I remember, I mean, I still have the ticket stub from it. It was very, you know, we're talking just a few years after Woodstock 94. And Woodstock 94 sort of forced a lot of teen girls to regress into, like, their parents' vibe aesthetically. So there was, Lilith Fair was just kind of like, oh, you like Tori Amos? Look at my flowy dress. Um... And I remember wearing, you know, skate shoes and huge baggy pants and probably some sort of punk band T-shirt. And I had horrible, um, like, spiky hair that was colored with this glitter paint. <laughs> you guys were leaning in. <laughs> well, yeah, totally leaned in. But he, you know, that is that is what I recall. Um, but that's that's just another example of being comfortable in your skin. Mm -hmm. It's Mm -hmm. just like, and I think it, 
we ended up being really probably powerful role models to somebody there that, you know, this is actually really good music to us. I mean, in hindsight, I don't listen to it <laughs> and I still listen to the punk stuff. But yeah, that was that was a transformative moment. And I think, um, you know, I encounter adults today, my age, older, who still have never been given that permission, who still feel that they need to um, act accordingly, I suppose. I totally get that. Um, do you keep up with him at all? I don't. He was, I haven't seen him since um, I was probably a junior in high school because hmm. he was older. He was a grade older. So after he left high school, I never saw him again. And what, what, what do you think if he knew that that was such an important song and moment that it sort of informed, you know, to such a degree that you've brought it up on a radio show, <laughs> you know, 25 years later or whatever? Oh, <laughs> uh, what would he think? Well, I, you know, I can only think about what like 16-year-old him would think, yeah. right? Um, I think he would probably pull out another record and send it to me. Hmm. I think he'd be like, oh, you obviously haven't listened to anything cool since the 90s. <laughs> Let me show you some other singer-songwriter from you know Belgium or something. <laughs> um, so when you were going through high school, like what did you see as your trajectory? Like were you – planning on any kind of future or were you just sort of living the punk rebel lifestyle and, you know, damn the torpedoes? I, you know, I wanted to be a rock photojournalist. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I wanted to tour with bands as a photographer and capture all of that, the Annie Leibovitz of it all. And that was how I saw my life going. That's what I pursued. I also wanted to play shortstop for the Yankees. And I also wanted to be a pro snowboarder in the X Games. And I wanted to be an author and write novels. And <laughs> I wanted to do all of those things. Um, did you play baseball? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Baseball, baseball? I played baseball and softball. Wow. Were you shortstop? I was a shortstop. Wow. Were you any good? <laughs> I started playing softball when I was five. I was I good? I I held my own. I mean, I was as good as any other girl going through puberty sliding into bases could be, I guess. <laughs> I mean, that's rough. That's rough business. Um, no, I, I mean, I, I just – I've always loved baseball. And, yeah, it's just one of those peripheral things that – I'll just get around to it. Like after, you know, after I become rich and famous as a photojournalist for like Rolling Stone and Spin, then um, I'll be called up, <laughs> you know, naturally. And then I'll have to leave due to some sort of writing injury while I'm trying to publish my novel. And uh, yeah, uh, so it goes. <laughs> when you wanted to be a novelist at that age, was it a romance novelist? No. No. That, that had not entered your your perspective yet? <laughs> no. I um I started writing creative writing in third grade and I started taking it seriously in third grade and I would write horror. I was <laughs> I was an eight year old horror novelist. Um and I also wrote like satire, you know. <laughs> um <laughs> uh yeah, I mean, 
This is why when I talk about like have my experiences as as somebody living with bipolar disorder, like it's it just comes out in all of these really fun, exciting ways. And in hindsight, when it's just like, oh yeah, I mean, I used to write horror and satire, <laughs> um, you know, and also just <laughs> just anything that would make me laugh. Writing it, I like to laugh out loud while writing. Um, but I took the the mechanics of writing incredibly seriously. So I wrote, you know, using the mechanics of of Stephen King. So every, I mean, there's lots of long words, lots of <laughs> lots of things that, in hindsight, when I read some of those old stories, it's just like, what was I even talking about? And it's clear I don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, have you seen The Shining or read The Shining? Yes. I'm sure you have. And yeah. yes. Um, speaking of Stephen King, sorry, totally unrelated, but I tried <laughs> watching uh, Stephen King like the other, like last week. And it's on, it's on HBO Which Max, thing? right? Uh, the Kubert version of... Oh, Stanley Kubrick? Yes. Yes. Yeah, sorry. I tried watching it on HBO Max like the like last week, mm-hmm. but a weird thing happened. Like um, I have a smart TV. Oh gosh, is this a scary story? Uh, no. Jared's <laughs> telling us a ghost story. story. Yeah. <laughs> So so I have a smart TV and it has like a menu, right? And it has the apps and I click on HBO Max. I, I search up The Shining and hit, there it is. I press play. Uh, then the screen goes back to the smart TV menu. Mm-hmm. But I, I like move the remotes. Like I, I click up on it. I can still hear the, the music of The Shining and I see it still being played, like the like the play bar is still oh. there, the name is still there, and the pause button is still there, and the, the movie's going, but I don't see it. Like I just I'm looking at the the home menu, so I I turn off the TV, I do it again like another four times, the same thing, didn't get to watch it. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I was I was totally afraid for a second that you're gonna say I put it on like the walls started bleeding. <laughs> <laughs> and, <laughs> And an axe materialized in my hand. Mm. Um, yeah, that that would be enough for me to just run some errands. I actually have never read a Stephen King book. Oh my gosh! I just I would I was like, hmm. <laughs> actually, would you like to know what just happened? Yeah. I said, oh my gosh! I was going to talk, sh- and then I said, what if Stephen King's listening? <laughs> <laughs> he lives in Sarasota. He has a house in Sarasota. Oh, we broadcast gosh. to Sarasota. There is a non-zero chance that Stephen King is listening to us right now. Listen, Stephen King. Your greatest work is your on-writing book on the craft of writing. I will say nothing else. <laughs> but I – so The Shining is actually the only movie that scares me. It's the only movie that to this day actually scares me because I'm afraid of things that I believe could actually happen. And somebody losing their mind in that setting and, and killing their family is something that, that could happen um, or, and has happened. But I – you know, there wasn't a young adult category back in the day for books. Goosebumps weren't around yet. No, but Fear Street was. So Fear right. Street was my oh, first Fear Street. Wow, Yeah, wow. Fear Street was my introduction to horror novels. And I read them like at I could read one a day maybe. And then I just started writing them and emulating them. Then I wanted more horror, so then automatically I blew through all of Stephen King's um his whole catalog. 
and, you know, Anne Rice and, and things like that and V.C. Andrews. V.C. Andrews. There's an attic, something about an attic. Uh, there's a terrible thing about an attic, yes. <laughs> That's all I remember. <laughs> we don't want to discuss what happens in the attic. Yeah, flowers in the attic. That's what it is. That is, that is if you want to talk some, like, horror romance crossover, hmm. that V.C. Andrews was, like, an originator of – of dark romance. I worked at a bookstore for many years, so I have all these like titles in my head, but I don't even know what they are necessarily. Okay, before we get to your third song, I want to just mention second song. Second song, yes, sorry. Um, Stephen King has been in this studio. Oh gosh. Uh, years ago, because he lives has a place in Sarasota, and we have connect. We have the ability to like if NPR National needs to talk to somebody, they can put him here, and we can do that. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, he has been in this room. You should get on three songs. Okay, listen. Oh, yeah. Well, if, if he's listen, listening, Stephen. we'd love to have you on three songs, <laughs> Stephen. I just don't know how else to quite ask. You inspired an eight-year-old girl, Stephen, to to put out her best writing. Um, he doesn't do much satire, though. Well. Or does he? Or he does. I don't know. I haven't read you know, his stuff. You, you know, know? He's, he has to stay on brand. <laughs> <laughs> but who knows what he's got? Notebooks, I'm sure, full of things. I mean, uh, we all do. Okay, you ready for this Aerosmith song? Yes. Would you like to tell a story or listen? I will tell the story. <laughs> so um, I was in 10th grade. So we're talking just, what, five months after Lilith Fair. <laughs> um, I became incredibly sick with um, a mystery illness, a building a mystery illness um, in which my body just started attacking itself, started just giving out um, for an undetermined reason. And I was bedridden for almost eight months. And during those eight months, my mom would go to the video store, everyone, video stores, every day <laughs> and rent me four movies. And I would watch them, and, and then after school, somebody would come by with my schoolwork and what, what have you. And because I couldn't go pick out these movies, we just decided to make our way through the video store. So just, like, start at the front huh. and let's go. Um, so when we got to Die Hard, <laughs> I'd never seen Die Hard, and I made it about – 30 seconds into the movie before I fell desperately in love with Bruce Willis. <laughs> I mean, to like, to the point of, like, this is it. Like, I found him. No need to date. No need to keep looking. <laughs> I have a mission in life. He and I will be together. Um, I am to be his bride. <clears throat> I, so I'm 14 years old. And... So I'm watching Die Hard. Forget the plot. I'm watching Bruce Willis move through a building without his shoes on, bleeding and saving people. And because she rented, you know, four at a time, it's like then Die Hard 2, then Die Hard 3. And that was all that was out at the time. And then it's like, okay, what's the story with this guy? I am so madly in love with him. And my goal was to meet him. Tell him I'm going to be his wife, whatever <laughs> the case may be, and everything would just be fine from there on. Um, so while bedridden, I found out that he had done moonlighting and all of these, like, I celebrated all of his work. 
<laughs> Hudson Hawk. <laughs> so, so I was infatuated with him. The following summer, like, so I was able to, I was reasonably well enough the following summer in June to go see Armageddon when it came out. And like my like my heart just breaks just even saying it out loud. Like, of course Bruce Willis would save us all. Like, of course he would. So that song, the uh, the song that we'll be playing is I Don't Want to Miss a Thing, Aerosmith. Um, in my brain, I was like, well, this is actually like Bruce Willis sort of dedicating the song to like Liv Tyler and me as he blows up on an asteroid just so that I can have the life that I deserve. And I, <laughs> I was very shameless about it. And I asked for Is this Bruce, something you shared with all your – Everybody. Okay. Uh, everyone who would oh, listen. Oh, Jenny's talking about Bruce again. <laughs> yes. Anyone who would listen. I asked for Bruce Willis for Christmas. So for Christmas, my mom got me like, like certified autographed Bruce Willis photo that actually the last time it was on my wall was like three years ago. In the bedroom I share with my husband. I just, like, put it up on the wall. Um, So I was just, like, madly in love with him. So once I was fully recovered, my parents took me and a couple friends to L.A. for the first time to go to Bruce Willis. (laughs) I was like, like, I'm going to go. I'm going to knock on the door and be like, hey, buddy, you don't know me, but you will. And <laughs> I wanted to see where all the filming locations of Die Hard, and it's you a know Bruce Willis pilgrimage. Yes, and while like all of my friends are into like reasonably aged boys, like in Teen Beat or whatever was happening at the time, I'm like, yes, but Bruce Willis. I don't know if you've seen his smirk and glint, and just ability to protect me. Um, Charm and strength. Just, oh, the charisma, just oozing charisma. So anyway, did all of that, did the Bruce Willis sort of like walkabout. Um, And then I will tie this up in a bow with um, a few years after that, Bruce Willis's band came to Detroit. Bruno and the Accelerators, for anyone who's taking notes. (laughs) And clearly I went. It was the first tour bus I ever tried to talk my way onto. Uh, not my last tour bus, but definitely I was gonna, the, yeah, definitely yeah, the I first. I noticed how you phrased that. Definitely the first. And in the middle of the set, it was like a jam session. And he was this, he just did vocals. So he like sort of left. And it was almost like what you would think would be like maybe they're transitioning into like act two or something. But what happened was he came out into the audience kind of in a disguise and watched from the audience. And, of course, you know, my hormone tractor beam from years past was like, there he is. So I did what any teenage girl would do. <laughs> and I just gently – Walked up behind him and I just like pressed myself to his <laughs> back <laughs> enough to feel his wallet. And then I stepped back you're, and you're, she's she's pantomiming. Yes, this. I am. I'm just like I'm holding because <laughs> more than any Aerosmith song could do. Um, it's it's holding out my hands that reminds me of it. But after that, I like I stepped back. I literally stepped back and was like. It's over. Like, I've washed my hands of my love for Bruce Willis. 
Like, I hope he finds what he's looking for. <laughs> and um, he never knew of our years-long, incredible love affair. He, you Did know, he respond I, at all? He didn't know. It was just, I'm He's telling so you, that. <laughs> I'm telling you, my body like whispered against his. It was like, do not get thrown out of here. You have a, you know, you're just, you're, just, you're in the presence of greatness. Um, you know, it was actually less creepy than me standing on the roof of a rental car outside of his house with like binoculars when I was 14 being like, I see a light. <laughs> so, yeah. And then, and <laughs> let's just get creepier. So then when I moved to L.A., um, my third apartment, I could see the building that was Nakatomi Plaza from the Die Hard, Die Hard One, and it like was like a like a comfort skyscraper, like how some people have comfort blankets. Uh-huh. Like this was like my comfort skyscraper. It's like did every- you pick the place because it had the view? I didn't. It was. It was. I didn't a- not. I didn't turn it down. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I will always be able to recognize Nakatomi Plaza like in the darkness. No, no questions asked. Um, is it a Christmas movie, Die Hard? I yes. hear there's a debate there's over no whether debate. it's a Christmas movie. Listen, Jared. It is. <laughs> I don't have an opinion. I have no dog in this hunt. So I mean, it's as much of a Christmas movie as Gremlins. Yes, so exactly. It's a, and you can take that for, for what it's worth. So it is, it is um, a movie that takes place on Christmas Eve. It's a Christmas movie. But there's no presents that are unwrapped. Huh. And I feel like that is that as somebody who watched literally an entire movie or video store <laughs> movies, um, I watched a thousand movies in eight months. So I will say that a Christmas movie has like a Christmas morning and Die Hard is Christmas adjacent. Um, it is it is, Isn't... but it fills me with Yuletide glee. I will tell you that. <laughs> I love how we get thoughtful answers to inconsequential questions like that on this show. Um, okay, well, you want to listen to this song then? So much. All right, this is "I Don't Want to Miss a Thing" by Aerosmith. It's from the Armageddon soundtrack. It's Jenny Lapham's second song on today's Three Song Stories. So. <laughs> I did a silence. Am I the first to just cause us an awkward silence in the in the studio? So is Nightmare Before Christmas a Christmas movie or a Halloween movie? Um, I it's I don't it's I don't know it scares me I don't like that movie I don't like <laughs> movies where Santa is in harm's way. <laughs> 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 can we quote you on that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I am a, I am a Christmas fan girl. I am obsessed with Christmas. I'm already talking about Christmas, <laughs> and so the idea that I'm going to watch a movie where Santa is is harmed, um, I don't care if it's Halloween or Christmas. Like, don't mess with Santa. <laughs> um. Were there any other Bruce Willis's throughout the course of your life? That just stopped me dead in my tracks and, yeah. and changed everything. Yeah, that you, that you, you know, um, pil- I've, pilgrimaged. I've stalked only Bruce Willis. Bruce, if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> um, Stephen, Stephen King. Um, no, he's the only one that I have stalked. Um, 
which is a good thing. But I mean, there were definitely people that I thought were were dreamy, but nobody that, um, you know, I used to be in love with Bam Margera when he was a pro skater. Um, And I would watch like every skate video that he was in. I was totally in love with him. I thought he was a mega babe. But then he got on jackass and, and did all of these things. And I was not, I appreciated him more at a distance at that point. Um, I never cupped him s- slowly in the dark at a, in a music venue. Um, <laughs> so you moved to L.A. when you turned 18? When did you move to L.A.? You said about that? Was, yeah. When was I, that always a plan? Were you like, I'm going to head out to the no, big city? No. So how'd that come about? Well, I was um, in pursuit of becoming a photographer. I I submitted an application to an elite photo school called the Brooks Institute of Photography in Santa Barbara. And I it was just it was a very very big shot in the dark. They accepted something like 200 students a year. Um the school was incredible. I mean it's in a series of gothic mansions. Hmm. It's a privately owned just very very inspirational kind of cool place. And I just threw my hat in the ring, so to speak, and I got in. And you had a portfolio of of work that you could submit? Yeah. um, My high school, fortunately, my high school had a dark room and a big uh, (laughs) big photo scene, big art department in my high school. I mean, um, we had creative medals where I learned to make jewelry and belt buckles, and we had, you know, pottery and graphic design. We ran, you know, a, a... band t-shirt racket out of out of the school and um yeah and and the dark room and and all of the photo classes what was your primary camera during that era shooting film yeah oh well i mean yeah (laughs) Yeah. clearly i i I didn't mean that as a question yeah it was um Um, i shot black and white um i loved even back then i loved expired film like old ilford black and white film um, because expired film gives it this really cool effect that now our phone filters or, you know, camera phones Well, and it adds a layer of randomness in the equation, which I appreciate as a person who creates images. I want something else to be slightly in charge. Yes. So I had – my dad got me a Minolta when I was 12 for Christmas. And when I went to Brooks, um, they started us at (laughs) – they started us at day one. So we all had to have four by five cameras, which are the big box cameras where you have to go under the sheet. Yeah, yeah. And you can only shoot, you know, two. They must have had them. You, they don't ask you to go get one of those, or did you? You had to go get one. Where does one go get one? I guess back then maybe it was slightly different. I mean, different because era. it was – because – Brooks was in Santa Barbara. I mean, Santa Barbara okay. is rife with um, yeah, photo yeah, yeah, places. Yeah. But yeah, so I had a, and I was driving a Volkswagen Bug, and my camera case with the tripod would not fit in my car. Um, it was so heavy. It took forever to set up. You had to get on the sheet, and if you exposed the film, then you had to break it all down, trek. <laughs> um, it was a disaster. So I've shot everything from, you know, just your basic. Um, point and shoot to a four by five. Um, but I mean, I just I had an icon, and it doesn't really matter what kind of camera you have. It matters if you have good eyes. <laughs> Do you have a real camera now? 
a real camera. Not your phone. Um, yes, yes. And not you I know, have something sev- you can change a lens on maybe. Oh, sure. Yes. Okay. Yes, I do. I have some Hasselblads. Wow. Yeah, I have I saw them recently actually. Like I was going through storage looking for something and I found a whole trunk of different cameras. I I love weird cameras, so I have I have a camera that has um six lenses, so mm-hmm. when you you shoot it like your film comes out with six frames. I have a spinner camera that you pull like like a Teddy Ruxpin kind <laughs> of, and it and it spins while it shoots, and you get this really intense panoramic. So it's like a Beyblade? I don't know what that is. Okay, sorry. But I'm going to say yes just because I want to support you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just – so yeah. that's what took you to L.A. So how long did you live out that's there? That's what took me to Santa Barbara. So that's what – I'm sorry. Yeah. That's what took so, you to California. That's what took me to California. And I lasted a very short amount of time before my love of movies um, called me to New York City where I wrote – where I wanted to write screenplays. Um, <laughs> I had not – L.A. comes next. So actually, that is our third song. Our third song is about the East Coast, West Coast pull in my heart. But yes, I ended up in California because of photo school. Gotcha. Yes. Um, Let's take a divergence between the arc so we don't get to your third song too quickly. Yes. Um, Concerts. Mm -hmm. How many concerts have you been to in your life? Hundreds? Like like a... Like, what do you consider a, well, a concert? Show. A show. It could be anything from a house party to a, a stadium. Oh. Um, I mean, thousands, easily. Um, I don't even know how to quantif- quantify it. I would say if we were doing, let's see, a few nights a week, every week for uh, 20 years. How many is that? What, Jared? Well, let's say three a week is 150 <laughs> a year for 20 years. That'd be 3,000 or something like that. Yeah, okay, so I, I became a, a journalist to to avoid math. Ah, uh, yes. So I would say, yeah, I would say a few thousand. Do you have a peak concert experience that leaps to mind? It's kind of hard to say when you got that many. Oh, so many of them are just they just blend together. I think you know, for me, and this is still true. I'm so um, I'm so affected by external stimuli, and so my entire environment plays into my experience in ways that I've come to find do not come into play for other people. So um, it's not just about a band that's playing or who's there. It can be about you know, what it smells like. It can be the temperature outside. It can be how comfortable I feel in my skin, how comfortable I feel in my clothes, um, how comfortable I feel just existing. Um, Those things kind of play into it. So when I think of like arena shows, arena concerts, um, those are really difficult for me because I feel very, very claustrophobic. I feel very... Um, lost in the shuffle. And and one of my biggest sources of anxiety is 
I won't be able to escape if I need to get out. So in big arena rooms, you know, like Madison Square Garden or something, I feel very, very freaked out. <laughs> it's too much. It's too loud. It's too many people. I don't trust a single one of them. There's stairs. Like, what's that about? Why am I parked so far? <laughs> Whose idea with this and why is it $500? So I would say um, my long-winded answer is that it's it's the type of shows that stand out to me. And if I am sweating from head to toe, if my hair is drenched and my arms are around friends and I am singing – as loud as possible, ideally very close to the microphone, and there's beer flying everywhere, and I forget everything about that day and everything about what I have to do the next day. I mean, those, I chase the experience, and there are a lot of bands who have given me that experience, but it's a good show is when I leave feeling like I got the crap kicked out of me and where I feel like I've worked out something that's just been um, trying to stretch inside of my guts that just needed to come out. Those are the moments that I remember. And, and um, I appreciate every single band who has given me that. And most of those bands, you know, probably existed for less than a year, <laughs> two right. years, you know, but um, those are the things that make me feel alive and make me feel like that same thing as, as the Sarah McLaughlin song. It's um, you're okay. Everything's okay. And this exists right now only for this minute, only for this second. We cannot replicate this. And we're very fortunate to belong to a scene where most of the planet will never even try to replicate it. So it feels very much ours. Hmm. You ready to listen to your third song or tell a story? Um, you can play it. How do you say it? Ja Rule? Ja Rule. <laughs> <laughs> I want to make sure I get it right. Um, okay, so we're going to listen to it. I mean, that's it. how I say it. Okay, well, I'll say it that way, I mean, way he's too. never introduced himself to and me. And it's Rule 336. That's how you say that's, the album? That's... Three I, colon three six. So I, now I this don't know. This is all if out of my. So I don't know if it's a time. Three thirty six. I don't know if it's a, like a Bible, Bible verse, verse like right. Austin, or if it's like Austin three sixteen. Who is the wrestler? I don't know how to say it. I'm gonna off of I'm gonna his. Go, I'm gonna go for it. Off of his hit record. <laughs> Just call it. All right, let's hear. It. This is uh, put. In on, put it on me. Put it on me by Ja, ja Rule from his best <laughs> album ever released in 2000. It's Jenny Laffin's third and final song here on Three Song Stories. It's biography through music. This is a great example of how on this show we don't ask people to pick songs that they even necessarily <laughs> like because it seems like you've made it clear that you're not a huge fan of that song. So no. what's the story? <laughs> I, I, respect, I respect the song. Um, so I, after I left Santa Barbara and moved to Manhattan, um, went to NYU for a spell to write screenplays, um, I decided to go back to California. Only this time I wanted to move to 
L.A. But it was, you know, I was 20 at that time. And it was one of those things where it was like, you have to get it together. And I'm just telling myself this, like, okay, are you going to be this photographer? You're talented. Are you going to be this writer? You're talented. Are you going to, you know, West Coast, East Coast? Who are you? You Like, I, all I knew is that I, I could not go back to Michigan. That was never an option. I was never supposed to live there. I mean, I've just, I've known that in my very bones. And I was lost. Um, you know, when you're uncomfortable in your skin, when you're uncomfortable mentally, you know, my diagnosis, my diagnoses were uncomfortable at the time. Um, my symptoms were uncomfortable at the time. And I would love to talk about that. But, you know, when the in when your insides are all wrong, you try to change your outsides as much as possible. Mm. So it's it's my internal environment is chaos, but the only thing I control I can control is my external environment. So California felt wrong, but New York felt wrong. Um, but there was a wonderful boy, I'm guessing boy, I probably man, young man, whom I met in Washington Square Park when I was living in New York. And I said, I'm here. I'm writing. I'm going to be the next Quentin Tarantino, obviously. And I said, I'm just here to write this movie. And I don't know if I'm ever going to make anything out of it. I just, I'm obsessed with movies. I, you know, being sick made me just, I, I have way more movies than records and way more books than movies. And um, he's like, okay, what if I give you a, a movie summer? What if, what if we just leave, like live this cliche movie summer? I was like, I don't even know what that means. He's like, summer in New York. Let's do this. And I think in hindsight, I don't know if he was homeless. I don't know if he lived there. I just <laughs> saw him every day in the park. But he would do these things that if you saw it in a movie, you would just be like, oh, this is why I would want to live in New York. This is, you know, yeah. these are the moments. And he gave me these very, very cliche New York moments. And I felt like, okay, I, I just need to go back to California and check this thing, but I'll probably be back. So when I was driving to California, um, my car was in Michigan, so I picked up my car from my parents, and I was driving to California, and I was in Nebraska, and I just had a full-blown panic attack. I was alone. It was the middle of the night. I love driving across the country alone, mind you. Um, and I was just completely torn about what to do. I didn't know who I was, where I was going, what I was supposed to do. I I could not let myself down again. I could not fail again. I could not tell another person that I didn't make it work. I was just so it was just so much inner turmoil going on. And at the time, I didn't realize that yo, know, like getting into elite, you know, art school not a failure. Like Writing a screenplay in New York, not a failure. Kissing a cute boy on a subway, not a failure. You know, but in my head, I guess I, and sometimes I still do this, equate longevity with success. Um, and that's 
for anyone. Stephen King, if you're out there, um, I don't think that that's true. Um, and that's something that we need to depart from. Um, but in my head, like longevity and success go hand in hand. So I'm crying. I'm in, I'm on the roof of my Honda Element in Nebraska. I have a suitcase of DVDs, a blanket, a teddy bear, and like all the CD cases imaginable. And this is what I've got. I have no place to live in in California. I'm just going there. And I just started talking out loud. What do you want? Who are you? Who do you want to be? What are you going to do? Does it even matter? Let's just do this. But you need to stay awake and you need to keep driving. And so I got back in the car and I was like, what is going to get me through this? What can I sing? And I put on jaw rules, put it on me. (laughs) Because it's such a departure from what I was listening to. Um, And I think I had the CD because somebody left it in my car. It wasn't something that I went out and purchased. But I knew the song very well. And I just sang it. And I sang it, you know, figuratively until my throat bled. And I screamed the lyrics to put it on me clear through Colorado. I mean, states. I'm just like, okay, Ja Rule, you and me, Ja Rule, are going to get my ass to California. And we will figure it out, you know, once we get there. And to this day, when I hear the song, which fortunately is rarely, I mean, it's a terrible, terrible (laughs) song. um, It brings me comfort. It's sort of like, you know, it's my it's my final countdown or like the Rocky theme. It's just like when you need to get your ass in gear, like jaw rule, Jenny, we'll get you there. And that's that is what I put on when I need to make a, t- a difficult decision. And then a few years later, I was on a flight and jaw rule was on my plane and um, I gave him like this super lame like. You know, like chin nod. Like yeah, I'm cool enough to do this to you. And I just like looked at him and, and like with my eyes hoped that I said, thank you for all that you've done for me and my life. <laughs> and you've done so much for me that Bruce Willis couldn't. And, you know, I tried to convey all of this in did a it cons- did, it, did, did you consider actually talking to him at all or saying something or were you just – No. And I don't even think he saw me. Yeah. It was just like yeah. – Hey, Ja Rule, you know, you have no idea what you've done for me. (laughs) When you think back of like, who do you owe big things in your life to? You don't expect it to be Ja Rule. Um, I love that sentence. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yeah, you can put it on a T-shirt. So when when you cross paths with Ja Rule once in your life, you just – you give him the nod. I mean, what am I going to do? Approach him and be like, hey, man, you got me through a panic attack in Nebraska five years ago. Like, what is – what do you even say right. to that? You know, it's just I, – I just appreciated him from afar. Um, and much like when you, had, you said, how do you say Ja Rule, I said to the person next to me, a stranger, I was like, is that Ja Rule? She's like, who? And I was like, <laughs> forget about it. 
<laughs> was that song a song that you knew? Was that song just the first song on the album? Could it have been a totally different Ja Rule song? That it could have been. You know what I mean. So I knew that song and um, the other hit on that record, which is where Where Would I Be Without You? Or I don't know if that's the actual name of it. So after um, Brian gave me my you know permission to be me and like all things me. Um, my friends, my my closest friends after that were from everywhere, all walks of life. They loved what they loved, and I loved them for loving what they loved. And um, so people who Ja Rule was like their, you know, their favorite, I mean, would be in my car. And I knew all of these songs. Um, you know, I know tons of country songs. I know all of these things, um, you know, just from like dating hippies and I don't know. There's just um, – so I I know the lyrics to a million songs that I would never own or listen to hmm. on my own because I've been fortunate enough to have such an eclectic friend group my whole life. And you never know which song is going to become a song that becomes a song. Right. And I, and I honestly, you know, this is just coming to me now as I think about it that – Perhaps flipping through my CDs in that moment, maybe that Jaw Rule CD was the only one that didn't already have a memory attached. Yeah. That it was just like – It was a blank slate. It was a blank slate. And so I, I distinctly remember – I remember the the wheat fields like whizzing by my window. I'm alone in this deserted road driving across Nebraska is a disaster. It takes a day and a half. Um, and just screaming the lyrics to this song that I don't even like. Um, and it got me to California. Hmm. Ready for a speed round? Sure. Do you have a nickname that has stuck over the course of your life that you would be willing to share? That I would be willing to share? Bianca Love Truck. <laughs> I'm not even going to ask if that's real or not. <laughs> do you do karaoke? Yes. What would be your go-to kind of karaoke song or songs? Um, it would be Temple of the Dog, Hunger Strike, um, The Humpty Dance, Digital Underground, um, Anything, Anything, Drama-Rama, and Broadway all day. What's your favorite Broadway show? Uh, <laughs> I, I just <laughs> nobody just can all this. <laughs> <laughs> that is the hardest question. Um, I mean, I have a rent tattoo on my chest. I mean that that's a that's a formative one. I first saw it in New York in 1996 when when it came out. I've seen Rent probably. Oh, I don't even know. Fifty. Fifty. More than 50 times. I went nearly daily when I lived in New York. <laughs> um, but yeah, of, of the last few years, I've really, I loved Dear Evan Hansen. I loved seeing Hamilton. Um, yeah, I, I can't, I can't pick six. We saw six last December and that was incredible. Moulin Rouge, incredible. I, I don't know. I love it all. 
So you definitely have seen a lot of Broadway shows, a lot of musicals, a lot of stage performances. Yes, I'm a I am a Broadway uh, fangirl, but not aficionado. My daughter's a senior in high school at Cypress Lake Center for the Arts, and she does theater, and she has brought all that into my life over the course oh, of the good. last 15 years. So I know all the things you were yeah, talking about, my, I know. <laughs> my mom is the founder of the New Phoenix Theater in oh, Fort really? Myers. Oh, Yeah, so, um, yeah, I, although I adopted punk as, like, my genre, I, I love all people who make music and share their passion. Um, okay. Uh, are you ready to sing a little bit of the theme song to Fresh Prince of Bel-Air for us, slightly with us? I mean, slightly with you or like a lot with you? Well, I mean, I, we'll be involved. <laughs> this is your, you're the, you're the, we're the, the, the accompaniment. Yeah, okay. The, so I, only... you're, you're Jenny and we're the Jenettes. <laughs> okay. I actually don't know how this this part goes. Well, we're, all, we're not going to do the whole thing. Okay. We're, we're going to do long enough to prove that we can do it. Oh, let me. Yeah, we'll get our. <laughs> do you know this song? Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm not, I'm young, but I'm not that, that young. You can be any age and still not have enjoyed watching Fresh Prince. <laughs> so we're ready? I think we're ready. Okay. How many takes do we get? <laughs> This is the part that actually does go out live. Oh, that's I'm funny. <laughs> now this, this is, is a story all about how my life got flipped, turned upside down, and I like to make a minute just sit right there. there. I'll tell so you how it made me turn to the town called Bel Air. And the best, yeah. In West Philadelphia, born and raised On the playground is where I spent most of my days Chilling out, maxing, relaxing, all cool And I was shooting some b-ball upside of the school When a couple of guys, they were up to no good Started making trouble in my neighborhood I got in one little fight and my mom got scared She said, you're moving with your auntie and uncle in Bel Air <laughs> When it came near the license place of fresh She doesn't want to stop in the mirror. <laughs> Your hope to Bel Air very well done. You lean into oh, that too. <laughs> I can see you doing karaoke. I lean into things. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, if, if you were a championship wrestler, what music would you come in on? Would it be the Ja Rule song? The Ja Rule. Ja? I'm, I'm, I struggle with that. Or if maybe in South America it's Ha. Yeah, exactly. Ha Rule. <laughs> um. <laughs> So, <laughs> sorry, I just pictured him uh, introducing himself that way. Um, what song would I come into? Probably My Heart Will Go On. What's that? From Celine Dion, Titanic. Oh, oh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, you want to throw off your opponent. Yeah, that's true. From the beginning. What would your wrestler name be if that was your song? The only thing that come to mind are like, what I would have if I were like an adult performer. <laughs> Actually, no. <laughs> uh, you know, because everybody's done like your porn star name or whatever. Um, no, I, for both my wrestler and my performer as a book nerd would be Paige Turner. Paige Turner. Okay. <laughs> I, I like that. Um, if you were a cocktail or drink of some kind that was a distilled essence of you, not just what you like, mm -hmm. but like what represents you. What would it be? It would be a lot to take. 
something <laughs> something that is hard to swallow at first but keeps you coming back to the bar and ordering more. So I'm going to say something unfortunate, unexpected, exciting, and daring. So I'm going to do some uh, Jägermeister with Jameson and Red Bull. Wow. With sprinkles on top and maybe some sort of cupcake garnish. Wow, that's an expressive answer. We got to think about it, right? You well, asked, most you people are not as as good at that. You're, I that mean, okay, a Long Island iced tea. I mean, that's got no, no. Everything. I like what you already. <laughs> what's it called? Um, Page Turner. <laughs> yes, like, it's it's. I like what you said. Um, a lot to take in. That's I, I don't know. It's it's up to you. It's a lot. It's a lot to take in, but um, you know. I I still think Bruce Willis would have been into it. I bet he would have. I, I hope it's something he would have ordered. I bet he would have. Um, <laughs> when we, when I was growing up, um, uh, uh, my friend group, a uh, uh, tradition when we turned 21 is you had to do a shot of, uh, it was one ounce of Jägermeister and one ounce of tequila. Oh, man. Yeah. That's that's four <laughs> different headaches at one time. I, I mean, if you did that shot now, like that would take you out for oh, two it, days. Yeah. I mean, it was just so gross. It was the grossest so thing. So gross, I mean, it but was, there was no, no, yeah. No, bartenders would be like, wait, did I hear you right? Is that? Oh, yeah, exactly. You want a Jaeger Kila? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, this is a new question. We'll try it out. I've okay. I've using it sparingly, but what is your most embarrassing moment ever, if you would be willing to share? Ever? I mean, I'm I'm fortunate to be blessed with just a staggering amount of confidence, like uh, the, you know, fake it till you make it kind of thing. Um, well, okay. So there's a couple that, <laughs> that just come bull- like <laughs> bulldozing. But um, a music-related one is um, in ninth grade, you know, with the bangs, with the braces, with the old boot situation. Um, my best girlfriend and I were still very much ourselves. Like, we were popular in each other. So we were just very, very much um, our own. And and there was a pep assembly uh, in the gym. And there were different kind of things that you could sign up for. And we decided that we were going to sort of make our high school debut and introduce ourselves by doing a choreographed lip sync. Um, so we decided to do it to Bobby Darren's Splish Splash, Mm. naturally. And so I was wearing a bathing suit, and I had a towel wrapped around me that was, like, safety pinned. And I was wearing that and um, American flag print Chuck Taylor high tops. Anyways, we choreographed this dance because I love dancing. And there was a shimmy situation that happened. And I shimmied down, you know, like a shoulder shimmy. And I shimmied back up, um, and my bathing suit did not join me. Oh. And and it's only embarrassing for two reasons. (laughs) One, I did not really need a bra yet. And two, um, it was like, 
six months into my freshman year, and I had to face these people every day for the next four years. And all of the gorgeous people I talked about, you know, who I walked in on day one, have now seen, you know, the alien life form that is a 13-year-old girl. (laughs) But the show must go on. Um, So I doubled down, and we did the lip sync every year after that. And our senior year, it was so upsetting to the masses that we got – it ended up on the news. People got suspended, and we got a write-up in Playboy. (laughs) Honestly? Honestly. What was so upsetting about it? Were you forcing yourself to lose your top every N- time? <laughs> no. But it was sort of like um, the worst had already happened, like mm-hmm. in the first one. Like, okay, nothing will stop me now. Nothing will embarrass me now. But the senior one we choreographed, and we did it to Jungle Boogie. Um, and we did a mashup, I think. But all of these... Every type of clique, people from every kind of clique uh, in our senior class wanted to do the lip sync. They were mad that we did it every year. So we just invited them all in. And it was like, we will choreograph it. People who would never want to hang out with us otherwise. And um, we did costumes and things like that. And there were – it wasn't intentional, but there were um, what – (laughs) <laughs> what authorities um, described as pantomiming sexual acts, huh. which was not true. And they also cited that there were boys dancing with boys and girls dancing with girls. And that was somehow problematic or vulgar or whatever. And they said that we pantomimed sexual acts, which, excuse me, I don't know how else to dance in the 90s with like freak dancing and after dirty dancing came out and all this stuff. I don't know what everybody else was doing. Whether they stuck to the choreography or not was not my problem. Um, but people got suspended. Then it made the news. Then there was footage of the dance on the news. There was a big conversation about if the punishments were homophobic, which, yes, obviously, of course it was. Then Playboy, whomever, caught wind of it. There was an article in Playboy about it that quoted my principal. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) So then – so I find out about the Playboy thing because the school counselor called me in and was like, you're in Playboy. And it's like – so all you're telling me right now is that you read Playboy. Like (laughs) this is what I'm gathering. And are you about to show a teenage girl in high school a Playboy magazine in your office? Because we could talk about that. Right. Um, he was like, the principal is really disappointed to be quoted in this, <laughs> this magazine. And it was like, hey, man, I just danced to Jungle Boogie. Um, and this is not nearly as offensive as what happened four years ago. And that was an accident. And I've endured four years of people bringing that up. So the least you can do is like – applaud me for bringing attention to your school. <laughs> There's no such thing as bad publicity in <laughs> no Playboy. No such thing as bad publicity. I was a minor. I, um, I still have the copy of Playboy. Hmm. It's – I've – yes, I've been in magazines in some of the most like caught in the moment kind of things. I was in Entertainment Weekly dressed as Madonna, like a full color picture. I was like, Jenny, age 17, 
Um, because I was dressed like Madonna at a Madonna concert. Hmm. Um, Shocking. But I, again, I like double down, <laughs> took it to <laughs> took it to new heights, I guess. But even then, I mean, why was that in entertainment? Like, like you couldn't find hmm. a better representative of you must have been a good madonna i uh, i mean sure but it was just you know those <laughs> kinds of things are just i'm just doing me yeah and somehow there's like national i'm like national attention brought to it so i when i say that there's like embarrassing things that happen i like i curb them pretty pretty quickly by just doubling down tripling down double dog daring you. <laughs> Understood. Um, if you had to choose a song that you would, could listen to again for the very first time, which would it be? Oh, that's hard. Um, oh, my goodness. Like, so many songs just went through my head. Um, I would say... There's a song called Woodson by a band called The Get Up Kids. And for some reason, that's, that is the song that comes to mind. I remember everything about where I was when I heard it. And um, it, it shaped the kind of music I listened to thereafter. Um, are there any songs you'll avoid listening to? Yes. Any that you <laughs> can, can name without having to think too hard about them? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I feel odd doing all these, like, obscure, I don't want to talk about, like, obscure bands. But, um, yeah, there's, there's songs about me that exist in the world um, that I don't like to hear. And I... Not only do I not like to hear them in a show setting, I don't I really don't like watching other people sing along to them. Hmm. Like there's that's another kind of like embarrassment. It's like, you know, if we want to get real serious, I mean, we never think about how people make money off of the stories that happen with other people. So it's like all these songs that we love, it's like if they're about somebody, like that person's not seeing an effing dying. Yeah, they don't have the copyright. <laughs> and yet, you know, there's people that this is like they're getting that story like tattooed on them or like – yeah. So um, the songs that I will avoid are songs about me or songs about people I love or by people I don't like as people. If you could broadcast a song into the head of every person on the planet hmm. simultaneously, which song would you give them? That's a tall ask. Mm-hmm. What's yours? Oh, I don't I don't have to have one. I'll think while you're thinking. Okay. I've never had that question asked to me before. So you're just wielding it, just throwing yeah, it around? Absolutely. Throwing punches you don't know you how bet. to take? You bet, absolutely. <laughs> that was um, not asked during your three songs, Mike. We didn't have that back then. Oh. Um that I could broadcast, it has to be that just the happiest, most motivating song. I'm going to get it wrong, so I, I have a difficult time answering it. Maybe Pour Some Sugar on Me. 
<laughs> hey, it worked because you just laughed and smiled. <laughs> Maybe Def Leppard's pour some sugar on me. Um, <laughs> I mean, uh, I like to imagine it through this lens. Whatever song you choose is going to be on the cover of every newspaper around the world. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> oh, then I would. Uh, then I'm keeping my answer. I mean, yeah, it, it just, you know, th- what what just a song that would change my life is not going to change anybody else's. But a song that everyone's just going to stop and go, huh? And you know, you're not going to turn it off. You're not going to turn it off. You don't get a choice. It's in your head. It's, it's you're you're like you're like beaming it into every oh, person's and then consciousness. It's, stuck it's not in coming every, on all it, the radios. But then it's, it's stuck. like everybody's suddenly looking at each other like you hear this. Oh, then yeah, it's Def Leppard's "Pour Some Sugar on Me." Okay, great answer. Um, <laughs> um, album you would choose if you could only have one. The Clueless soundtrack. <laughs> that, does that count? Well, sure. I mean, I, it would have to be a compilation. Because um, I'm not going to give any band that kind of power over me. It would have to be a, a soundtrack or a compilation um, or something instrumental. You know, I in high school, I used to write lyrics to um, like Beethoven and hmm. uh, yeah, just – Symphonies, that's interesting. symphonies, that's things like totally, that. Un, that's a totally novel concept to me. That's interesting. So when there's instrumental songs like a band I really love, Explosions in the Sky, um, I love writing lyrics to instrumental songs. So, yeah, it might be something like that. If I only had one, I would like one that I could – that was malleable, that I could turn it into many different things over time. What would your 14-year-old self think of who you are today? <laughs> This is where we get psychological, um, and I know you're psychological. So I am psychological. I think that she would be very nervous to talk to me. <laughs> um, I don't draw on my shoes. I think that would intimidate her. <laughs> um, I I I don't know. I look like what I thought I would look like, which is. Both good and bad. I mean, I'm removing my tattoos. I sewed up my my ear giant earlobes. But I mean, there's. I think if she saw me, I think she would consider me a safe person. It's time for you to recommend your three people. I would like to recommend my mom, Brenda, who who founded the theater. Yes, Brenda Kensler. She's the founder of the New Phoenix Theater. Um, who took me to all of the Broadway shows in New York, and we still go every year, except for during the pandemic. Um, I would like to nominate my husband, David Lapham. Um, If anyone has good music stories, it's he. And I decided that I'm going to nominate my brother, David, Dave, Um. Because he's the one who introduced me to most of the music that I love. All right. Well, do your part. Put this in front of them. They're all related to you, so that'll be doable. They are. And and we would love to get them on the show. Thank you. Do you have any final thoughts? I have a lot of final thoughts. Okay. <laughs> no, just I just have a lot of thoughts. I mean, this was a, 
an interesting experience. I think um, the 14-year-old me got me. What would she think of me? Um, I don't know. I'm I'm always compelled to think of listeners, to whomever's listening to anything that I'm saying, um, to to talk about mental health always. And I just want everyone to be okay. I don't know. These songs and talking about this kind of stuff, um, it's all about being okay. And they're all the songs that changed my life were the songs that motivated me to trust myself and to be resilient and to be okay. And when I think of that 14-year-old girl who would see me, I know that she wasn't okay. You know, so that's that's what I'm thinking about right now. I don't know. I appreciate the opportunity to think about all these things again. Thanks for trusting us <laughs> to think about them with us. Yeah. <laughs> we make three song stories in the studios of WGCU Public Radio on the campus of Florida Gulf Coast University in Fort Myers, Florida. Richard Chinqui is co-creator and producer. Tara Callaghan is online content producer, and she hosts. Jared the Intern Gonzalez is our production assistant. Christophus is our executive producer. And our theme song was made by Dave 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 Cowan and Stick Martin at Monkey House Studio in St. Pete. If you'd like to hear a slightly shorter version of this conversation but one with longer versions of the songs, just go to our website, wgcu.org, and click the Listen tab at the top of the page. For this week's Parting Tune, we're going back one year to episode number 189, guest Brian Weaver. Weave. Brian is a street artist and co-founder of Art Symbol Underground, which helps local businesses gain attention through murals, sculptures, or art events. He owns a gallery of the same name with fellow artist episode number 181, guest Cesar Aguilera. Brian's first song takes him back to when he was about six years old. His dad was in trouble with his mom for some reason, and they'd been arguing one night. So when his dad picked him up from school the next day, they went to a record shop in the mall because his dad had a song he really wanted to play for her. As they went in, Brian asked him what it was called, and his dad said he didn't know, but they were just gonna wing it. So he goes up to the guy at the record store, and he starts to sing this song to the guy. And I remember looking up at him just like, dying laughing because it was like so hilarious to watch him try to he's like you know don't worry and then he's like be happy and then he's trying to whistle that whistling <laughs> part and the guy just looked at him and just kind of like I was just dying the guy the record label was by he's like he's like I got you I got you man so he you know he takes us to the place where the record is we pull the vinyl out you know dad buys it we go home and I remember walking in, the house was real quiet at the time, and, um, and he walks in, he takes the record, puts it on the record player, and turns it up super, 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 super loud, like to where like the whole house was vibrating. And then my mom comes out of the room, and they just give each other a hug and a kiss, and then we start cooking dinner. And then we just danced to that song. I mean, for months and maybe even years, that song was like, you know, it kind of became their song of whenever my dad, you know, would, you know, mess up. Keep listening. Next time on Three Song Stories. Oh, I could play doing banjos, doing mandolins, guitars, whatever you want. Yeah, you did it.